your word with a fresh and a deeper understanding of yourself. We pray, Father God, that you would make the radiance of your splendor and your glory shine ever brightly to us, your people, that we, our hearts may be changed and inclined towards you, and that our lips would utter your praises. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a, the, the mount of a commoner. And when he returns, he is going to be riding on a white horse of war. Just like the Roman generals would do when after some great military victory, they would ride in on a white horse with a, a long procession behind them, full of all of the, the treasure they had captured, their armies decked out in splendor. If they had any slaves, they would have them marching behind them. And they would go into the capital city in triumph to celebrate their great victory. And here we see Jesus, like a Roman general, riding on a white horse, yet He rides the horse to victory in before the battle has ever even taken place, because such is our God. He is called faithful and true. Is there anyone else you could really rightly call faithful and true? If you do, you, you might be in for a significant disappointment when they fail to live up to that billing. I recall uh, emulating a, my pastor many years ago. And this was a guy that, if you ever had someone, you just wanted to be like him. He was faithful. He was reliable. He was trustworthy. He had gifts just falling out of his ears. It's one of those rare people that you, know, you meet with and you get to know and you pray with and you just feel like you're in the presence of God. And, and, and as he's just being himself, you feel yourself sharpened and shaped and you become more of the man or the woman that God wants you to be. And I'll remember the day when he failed to live up to a promise that he had made me. A, a, a promise that his failure to live up to at the time caused a significant amount of heartache for me and changed my life rather remarkably. And in, in his humanity, all he failed to do was live up to the promise. The man that I had thought was faithful and true. And which was the greater problem? His humanity or my idolatry? In this life, friends will fail you. Family members with the greatest of intentions will fail you. Churches and church leaders sadly will fail you. But Jesus Christ never lets any of us down. And He will never fail you because He and He alone is faithful and true. He was faithful 2,000 years ago to the promise to enter this earth as a babe and die for the sins of all who would believe. He has been faithful these last 2,000 years in going to prepare a place for those who would become His sons and daughters that He would live with them forever. He is faithful this moment in hearing the prayers uttered all around the earth, be they short or long, full of joy or despair. He will be faithful in returning even as He promised. He is true to His promise to give a full, abundant life to all who would ask. iPads, careers, 
Jobs, cars, homes. The, I, I saw an article in the front page, not front page, inside full spread ad, Vogue magazine. A big, beautiful Bentley, beautiful manicured lawn, nice suit, offering the good life was the tagline. We are surrounded by so many things that offer us a full life, and yet Jesus Christ is the only one true and faithful and able to deliver. And so let's praise Him. Let's praise Him that He is faithful and true. With justice, He judges and makes war. Saying that God is a warrior doesn't always sit well in the culture we live in. But let's praise Him that He is. I remember two years ago being in Mexico on another mission trip. And we're there in Mexico. And we received the opportunity to go into the red light district of this city, Matamaros, in order to, to do some ministry and to share the gospel and to see how the Lord would direct us. And so we're there. We're walking around. And you can imagine, we're, we attracted some attention. This gaggle of tourists, you know, with our water bottles and our backpacks, walking around. You know, with our, our translator. And we, and we walked around for about 45 minutes or so just looking for an opportunity. And eventually we, we run into a, a girl that, sadly, by virtue of her dress, it was fairly obvious she was a prostitute just standing on the side of the street. And so we went up and we talked to her and we, we, asked, if we, we asked permission to talk to her. And she agreed to talk to us if we bought her a soda. So it seemed like a fair deal. All right, if I spend $2 on a Pepsi, I can share the gospel. Great, okay. It was only that easy every other day of the week, right? And, and so we buy her the soda and we're sitting there, you know, trying to, trying to talk with her and understand her name and she gets to know her a little bit and, and, and witness to her as best we could. And I gotta tell you that underneath the hat that was pulled low and the, the pounds of makeup, we were talking to a girl living in the life of prostitution that couldn't have been more than 13. 13! As old as the girls that we were bringing on the trip. And I noticed a funny thing as we were sitting there talking to this girl that were there engaged in this conversation on this just sweltering hot day where I'm baking in the sun, that police cars keep going by. Every like 60 seconds to a minute, a cop car goes by, you know, all slow, leaning out, staring at us. And me being, you know, the the conscientious citizen that I am, I look at our translator and said, are we going to get arrested? You know, because I'm afraid, like, are we going to get arrested for, you know, they, do they think we're trying to solicit a prostitute? Like, that, there's a tagline, you know, for, to get called home. Pastor Chris and the teens are in jail for soliciting a prostitute. Yeah, that'll catch a headline. And what's going on? And the translator looks at me and he says, no. They're not here. Yeah, they're here to look at you. They're here watching you. Not because they're afraid you're going to commit an offense or a crime to arrest you. They're here to make sure you don't help her. They are here because they're paid off by the gangs and the pimps and they want to make sure that you don't rescue this girl. They're here for us alright, but not for what you think. Awash a world sickened with human trafficking, with genocide, with child abuse, with famine, We need a God who is going to bring justice and execute judgment because we're surrounded by it if we will simply look past our manicured lawns. And those of you who have personally been hurt by this fallen, sickened world that we live in, 
you can rejoice in the justice that God promises to bring. One commentator writes, The word judgment carries negative overtones and implications for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that God's, that throughout God's word, His coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned after. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees to clap. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might one day come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their dues is the best news there can possibly be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Jesus Christ is a warrior who, who, when He returns, will make war on a white war horse. And let's praise Him that He will. His eyes are like blazing fire. Have you ever known someone that you met that just being around them you felt unsettled? Like they could see right through you? Maybe it's a joke. Maybe you, know, you were just playing cards with someone and, and you're like, I don't really know that I have a good poker face. Oh, they know that my hand is not good. You try to bluff, and every time you try to bluff, they just... You lose. Or, 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 or you're there, and you know, you're sitting at the job interview, and you're thinking, okay, portray cool, calm, confidence, be together. And the whole time you're sitting there thinking, is there sweat coming down my cheek? Can they tell that I'm anxious? Do I look nervous? Are they going to see right through the way I'm trying to sell my experience? Oh, no. You know, it, it happens in dating, too, doesn't it? You know, you spend the first six months dating thinking, I can't show them the real me, because they may not like the real me, so I'll show them the me that I think they want, and then after they've invested in the relationship for six or seven months, and are committed, maybe then I can slowly show them the real me, because they don't want to have to start fresh with the fake somebody else. We live in a world afraid Afraid to be honest with itself. We live in a world where we self-deceive, where we self-medicate, where we hope that people won't see the deeds that we do in darkness. And sadly, many of us transpose those ideals interpersonally on our relationship with God Himself. We think, I hope He doesn't find this out. We try, to, we try to self-deceive ourselves because we're afraid that, gee, maybe he won't know where I'm really at if I don't admit where I'm really at. But if I admit where I'm really at, then he's going to know, and that's just bad. We're afraid that this God with the blazing eyes, that if he knew what we were really thinking, if he knew what we were really desiring, if he knew what we were really doing, we're afraid he would want nothing to do with us. And yet the Scriptures paint us such a different picture. This God who comes down in splendor on His horse of war with eyes that pierce to our very hearts, who can judge our hearts, our thoughts, our actions, who knows what we're going to do or think before it even occurs to us, He knows all of that, us better than ourselves, and He still says, Come to Me, all you who are weak and weary, that I may give you rest. We worship a God who's seeing us for what we really are underneath the the makeup we proverbially try to put on. 
pursues and chases after us like a hound from heaven. That's the God we worship. A God who knows the depths of our sin and loves us and pursues us anyway. Let's praise Him this morning for who He is. He has several names. The text tells us that no one knows His name but He Himself. There's, there's the sense of mystery and wonder that we're compelled to associate with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I, that's what I love about theology. I can spend all day studying God's Word. I can read these thick texts you know, that I can, every other word I can barely understand. And I can, I can get an idea of who God is and His character and His nature and His will. And yet in the end, I only know in part. And that makes me want to praise Him all the more. Because I can't sum Him up like I can this pulpit. I can't measure the length and the width and the depth. I can't do an equation to figure out the area or the circumference. I can look, I can see, I can touch, I can feel, I can understand. But in the end, there is so much of Him that is still beyond me and I am left with nothing to do but praise His glorious name. We are told that His name is the Word of God that this moment... He is sustaining the world. That in a few hours the parade would never happen if God decided to walk away. That the fireworks many of us enjoyed last night or hope to enjoy tonight would never happen if He just decided to say, hey, I think we can dispense with gravity. We don't need it anymore. And He's holding that in His hand right now. That much like the Greco-Roman world where the the warriors would come into battle, especially the high-ranking warriors, they would march into battle and they would have a name, a symbol, a crest perhaps, on their thigh, on the tunic, right below where the sword would rest. It It would be kind of the, today we have flags, it would be the symbol of prominence that you would look at across the field of battle and say, who is leading this army? Who is that? What's their name? What's their family name? What's their rank? Who am I dealing with? And as we see Him march in, and we focus on the name that He has there, above the thigh on His tunic, who does the Savior of our souls proclaim to be? The God who says that He will never leave us or forsake us? The one who says that he, when He returns, He will comfort all of those who mourn and wipe away every tear? The God who says that His eyes are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to their prayers, who does He proclaim Himself to be? Basilios Basilion Kai Kyrios Kyrion, King of King and Lord of Lords, that's who we pray to. That's who we praise. That's who in the moments of our depths we're begging for help from. That's in the moments when we're looking for guidance. That's the one we're seeking. That's the one who authored the book that we study that reveals his character, nature, and will. We're not talking to some uncle or some slightly better than us kind of guy. We're looking at the King of King and the Lord of Lords. Billy Sunday once famously quipped that there are 256 names for the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture. And he said, I suppose it's because he is infinitely beyond any one name and and, and the meaning that any one name could express. Let's praise him. He is dressed in a white robe dipped in blood and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Jesus got his beautiful white robe dirty 
in order to make us clean. He let his robe become stained as he tread down the grapes in the winepress, satisfying the wrath of God occasioned by our sin so that we might be on horseback riding with him. Imagine that by nature we were there, rebels in the valley. Our gaze and our guns aimed towards heaven, awaiting the return of this rider that we could let loose everything we had on him. And that Jesus Christ suffered and died a gruesome death so that we who were rebels in the valley with the beast and the false prophet could ride down in white robes of purity and victory behind the king in his glorious, victorious procession. That is what he has done. That we're not there because we're religious. We're not able to be there because we came from good Christian homes. We're not there because we lead good, moral, upright lives. We're not there because uh, we come from, um, good, from good Christian homes or because we're even seeking Him. We can, we're there because He sought us first. Because the Scriptures say He died for us while we were still in our sins. Because He pursued us and died that we might not have to. We are compelled this morning to turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To bask in the fullness of His wonderful grace. And I invite you, confess your sins to Him this morning. Promise to live as if He were your King. And let Him transport you from that valley of rebellion to the camp of His brothers and sisters who will ride with Him in glory and victory. It's an easy decision that will cost you your life. And it's the best decision we can ever make. Let's praise Him. This is who Jesus Christ is. As Christians, when we read the book of Revelation, we can disagree about what the rapture is, when it is. We can disagree about the relationship today that the church has with the nation of Israel. We can disagree about the nature and the extent of the millennium in chapter 20, but we cannot disagree about our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can look and must look joyfully, expectantly together for this moment of His return that could happen at any hour and hunger and thirst for the righteousness that only He can deliver. And we must praise Him for it. So we've looked at the return of Christ to this battle. Let's look at how the battle turns out. One thing we notice is that the battle is over before it begins. Jesus' defeat of evil is not some nail-biting, sitting-on-the-edge-of-your-seat, hair-pulling kind of, kind of attack where, where we wait and we say, I don't really know who's going to win. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, you know, it really could go either way. I'm glad I'm not a betting man. The, it is decided before it has ever begun. It, it's fairly anticlimactic, isn't it? You, know, you, you picture in your mind the, the, the armies of the beast and the false prophet arrayed, guns blazing, waiting. Jesus come, Heaven opens, Jesus comes down. And the next thing we know, the false prophet and the Antichrist are captured alive. It's pretty humiliating. They're not even strong enough to mount an offensive They just get captured, thrown into the lake of fire, judged. It's over before it begins. 
They are so overwhelmed with the returning king and destroyed by the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. One thing we, another thing we see is that Jesus himself is the only one who really takes part in the battle. If this, in fact, is the only just and true holy war, he's really the only just and true holy warrior, isn't he? Because he is the one who destroys the enemy with the sword of his mouth. His children are really just there to cheer him on. They're there for the show. Those who oppose God, who continue to refuse to return to Him in faith and repentance, are exposed to the full wrath of the Word of God. The full strength of the Word of God. The same Word of God who said, let there be light. And there was light. The same Word of God who created the earth and the seas and populated everything that is in them. The same Word of God that enables the earth to rotate on its axis at this very hour. They exposed the same wrath and power. And we see two banquets here in chapter 19, if you put together last week and this week. The banquet of the Lamb. The banquet of those who turn to Christ in faith. And the banquet of the carrion birds. And so there's a sense in which we will all be at a banquet one day. It is a question of whether we will choose to be the eater or the eaten. And so I ask you again, if you have not, please turn to Christ this morning. Turn and receive His grace and His goodness and His mercy and His love because there we see there is no one exempt from this judgment. It includes every educational level, financial strata, political and military position. The only ones who will be removed from it are those who have cried out to Jesus. What do we do with a text like this? I'd like to suggest three things briefly. First, we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves before a mighty God and we praise Him. Again, such a glorious picture of Christ, when we see Him work victory, there is little other that we can do other than praise Him, isn't there? We're reminded that if it were not for His grace, we would still be in the valley of rebellion and rightly under His wrath. That there is nothing we have done to merit our salvation. There is nothing better than a Christian than there is about anything else, anyone else in the world. That it is entirely a matter of grace. And we praise Him for that. We're reminded that the goal of our lives against such a glorious picture of a Savior should be to make less of ourselves and make more of Him. To exalt His name in all that we say and do because He alone is faithful and true. Because He alone can see to our hearts. Because He alone judges with complete justice. So we praise Him and we humble ourselves. We trust Him to do justice. In the movie The Last Samurai, Tom Cruise's character expresses a disbelief in the existence of God because of the pain he has seen on the field of battle. And so, like many today, he looks at suffering in the world and injustice and he says, God cannot exist with these things present. And yet as we look at this text, we are reminded that even as some see injustice in the world, 
and get frustrated and disbelieve in God. So God himself sees injustice in the world and the pain and the suffering he gives rise to. And we see that he promises to come back and to deal with it. And because he promises to deal with it, we can let go. Because Jesus Christ promises to come back and to bind up every wound and to administer just justice, to usher in a peace on the other side of judgment, we can let go of the pains and the scars that we inevitably pick up as we march through this journey that we're all on together. Because we realize, I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to take it anymore. He is... By grace, we can say, God, I am going to help me to let go of this because I know you won't let go of it. Help me to let go because I can trust you to handle it. Help me to let go because I know vengeance is yours. You will repay. Help me let go. Take this burden. This is only made possible because we can trust God to administer justice. Finally, we can encourage other believers. I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, speaking of a similar event. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that those who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord together forever. And here's the verb for us. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. I think it's fair to say that life this side of heaven is hard. It is difficult. It is full of letdowns, broken promises, shattered dreams, defeats, and tears despite all of the many great things that we ought rightly to give thanks for and the grace He sustains us with moment by moment. This life is hard. And if you have not already, I promise you there will be a moment when you cry out and say, God, I cannot take this anymore. Will you please just come back? I cannot bear this pain any longer. And when we look at a text like this, we are reminded that our Savior is coming. That the tears we so freely shed now will one day be shed no more. That the pain and the sickness and the illness we or our loved ones carry around with will one day be no more. That the medications we have to take for our health that we feel in bondage to will one day be a thing of memory. That the pain and the suffering we see on every cable news channel will once and all be forgotten that one day our Savior is coming. And so in the midst of when, our, when we face adversity, we encourage each other that what we feel now is so short, though it is so acute, 
And that what we long for, that what we expect when our Savior returns is so long and so great and immeasurably more beautiful than all we could ever ask or imagine. And so we encourage each other with these thoughts. Every step we take closer is a step towards the return of our Savior and when the world will be turned on its head for the better. And so we praise Him for who He is and what He has done and will do. Where is the triumph? Where does the victory really come from? Jeffrey Brown puts it well when he writes, Some will tell you that triumph will come by the development of human beings, the gradual evolution of their potentialities. We should just give it time, wait and see. Everything's coming up roses. I would, I would add this is the myth that technology offers us so readily and fully. World War I dealt that theory a cutting blow. World War II broke its spirit. Vietnam laid it in its grave. Will human progress ever stop people and nations from sinning? Will human progress and achievement ever wipe away all our tears from our eyes and heal our broken hearts? To ask these questions is to answer them. No. The final victory will not come through some natural human progress of human development, nor through the religious forces that are operative in the world right now. The victory will not come by an improvement of the present order, but by its complete overthrow and suppression. The high point of history will be the sudden appearance on the field of battle of the great captain of our salvation. And he will come in glory comparable to the vision John saw when he said, Behold, I see a white horse. And there is a rider on that horse whose name is Faithful and True. And he has many crowns on his head. Let's praise him. Father, we long for the day of Your return. We long for You to usher in the fulfillment of the ages. We long for You to comfort all of those who mourn. We long for You to heal all of those who are sick. We long for You to reveal Yourself in greater splendor. I pray, Father, that You would fill us with thoughts of You as we celebrate our independence this day. I pray, God, that if there are any of here who do not have independence of their souls, that you would work freedom in them. Lead us all to the place where we can confess our sins to you and trust you and to be our Savior and commit to you as our King. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Crown him with many crowns.